0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Res City, Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and we are in the middle of a sermon series that we're doing throughout this fall, uh, walking through the Sermon on the Mount, this uh, sort of paradigmatic uh, sermon that Jesus gives, that is uh, his announcement. He's his, his kind of de- describing to us what it looks like to live in uh, the countercultural kingdom, um, and so we're, we're walking through that. We're like uh, letting ourselves kind of come into contact with the words of Jesus, which at times are, are pretty radical. They are, they're going to stretch us. They're going to challenge us. And I think we're going find, to uh, find that today as well with our passage. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll ha- hop into it. Lord, thank you for a chance to come and worship you this Sunday morning we're thankful for it God and I pray that you would just in our hearts help us to be uh, to, to understand sort of the, the weight the gravity uh, of, of what it means for us to have been uh, bought by you at, at a price to be your people God to be set apart so we may follow you we may experience you may we may uh, enjoy your love, um, Lord, but then also have the depth of knowledge of what it looks like for us to live in light of that. And as we talk about uh, one, of those, one of those challenging things today, Lord, I pray that you just be with us, uh, give us wisdom, and, and help us to do that well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so in his book, the, the Moral Vision of the New Testament, Richard Hayes recounts the story of Father George Zabelka. Uh, this is the, the Catholic chaplain who uh, in World War II administered mass to the Catholic bomber pilot who dropped the atomic bomb on Nagasaki in 1945. Now, if your history is rusty, this was the second A-bomb that was dropped on a Japanese city. And these two bombs uh, totally obliterated these two cities. Um, Hundreds of thousands of civilians died, and it ended World War II. Uh, Father Zabelka, on reflection on his role in this. Here's what he had to say about this. To fail to speak to the utter moral corruption of the mass destruction of civilians was to fail as a Christian and a priest as I see it. Catholics dropped the A-bomb on top of the largest and first Catholic city in Japan. One would have thought that I, as a Catholic priest, would have spoken out against the atomic bombing of nuns. Okay, these three orders of Catholic sisters were destroyed in Nagasaki on that day. One would have thought that I would have suggested that as a minimal standard of Catholic morality, Catholics shouldn't bomb Catholic children. I didn't. So in that moment, before the bomb was dropped, Father Zabelka, was, he was okay with this. He was kind of whipped into like, this frenzy that we often find ourselves in in war. Humans kind of find themselves often whipped into that frenzy when they find themselves in conflict like this. But after he had reflected on it and prayed through it more and more, he could not fathom how him blessing the dropping of an atomic bomb could fit with what we find in the New Testament especially with what we find off the lips of Jesus in the passage we're going to be talking about today. Now, if you remember last week, if you were here last week or heard the sermon uh, later on, we talked about how radical it is for us to follow Jesus. And that's kind of the point of the Sermon on the Mount, is to sort of portray to us, this is not a small, trivial thing But rather, it is actually supposed to be radical, to be a real challenge to us, to stretch us. And I think, you know, if you've grown up in church, you've heard this many times, we can kind of fail to, like, grapple with the radical nature of what Jesus is calling us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, But I think we have to allow ourselves to be uncomfortable as we read this, to sort of not read it uh, in in familiarity, um, but to really read it and let ourselves kind of be challenged by it over and over and over again throughout our lives. And today's section is no less radical, and it forces us to wrestle with this question. Is it ever God's will for us to respond to evil in anything other than love? Okay, should, should we be people who retaliate? Should we engage in violence? Is there ever a situation where it's appropriate for us to do this if we are followers of Jesus? Okay, we're going to get to the heart of that question today. We're going to really talk about it because that's what Jesus has to say here sort of forces us to wrestle with this question. Now, we do. We live in a world where violence is is normal, and it's often justified, right? We just talked about uh, one very famous example of that uh, back in the 1940s, dropping an atomic bomb uh, and and kind of wiping out a couple of large cities to end a war. Uh, Historically, violence and war are kind of a constant presence in all societies, right? We, We see that. Social media helps us to see that this is a constant for, for us throughout the world today, even if it's not something we maybe find ourselves dealing with, um, you know, directly in our lives. We can tell this happens all the time, all around the world. And Christians, even in the church itself, if we look in history, have gotten in on the fun on a regular basis, unfortunately. Right? Many Christians have been like Father Isabelka was before uh, and when he blessed the dropping of that bomb, kind of glorifying in the violence of the war uh, of war, calling it good, calling it god 's will that that kind of stuff happens. Should we ever be okay with that that 's the question I want us to think about today. Should we ever be okay with that personally if i 'm just speaking for myself it 's my conviction that the New testament and jesus 's witness. Pretty clearly, call us to an ethic of nonviolence and and radical enemy love. All right, I I have a hard time reading the New Testament and not coming to that conclusion. Uh, I I think it's tough, uh, but I'd say that there is never a situation where retaliation, especially in violence, is the appropriate response for a disciple of Jesus. Okay, and this passage is one of the major reasons why I I personally come to that conclusion. Now. Like some of the things that we talked about last week, right? It, this is a sensitive, it's an important subject. And if you disagree with the way that I'm reading it, that's, all, that's okay, alright? I'm not, I'm not telling you that you, you have to agree with me. This is a, what we would call an, an inter, intramural debate among Christians, I think. People who follow Jesus, who kind of all take the same thing seriously, everything in the Bible, and we're trying to make sense of it together. I think this is one of those things that it's okay for us to disagree on as we sort of seek Jesus out together. But I'm just asking you today, simply allow yourself to come into confrontation with Jesus' words and allow yourself to really just consider the implications of what he says here. All right, so let's dig in, and uh, like we've done throughout all the other uh, sermons in this series, we're going to have question and response at the end. So if you have any questions about anything, you'd like uh, to get deeper, to unpack something, uh, we'll try to get to it at the end. Uh, we, we might not might to get to all of them, just because we might not have time, but if you'd ever, ever like to talk you know, more about this, I would love to get together too, as well, just to kind of wrestle through it uh, together. All right, so let's get into it. Matthew five thirty-eight. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now, if you remember last week, um, or if you're familiar with this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been saying, you know, you've heard it said blank, but I tell you blank. So he kind of says, you know, this is what you're used to, this is what you know, but I'm kind of, this is what I'm calling you to. All right? And he said, sometimes sets these, these things out in contrast or, or conflict with one another. So what he's quoting here is Exodus 21, 24. Also we find it again in Deuteronomy, 20, Deuteronomy 19 and Leviticus 24:20. 20. So it kind of pops up a few times in the Old Testament. And it's typically called the lex talionis. Um, it's, an, a law, it's a law that sets an appropriate response to evil done with a, an equivalent response back to it, all right? And, and, and this didn't always necessarily mean like literally an eye for an eye. In Jesus' time, uh, this was often quantified financially. Um, and its main purpose, as far as we can understand it, was to limit violence. That was kind of one of the main goals, right? So no more than an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth in your retaliation or your response to kind of help define like legally how do we as a society want to approach this question? So, these are laws, like for, for, for the state to live out. Now, Jesus is here obviously referring to individuals. And whether that means that th- this, uh, this uh, principle was applied in individual situations and people were just kind of felt like they could go and do this on their own, we, we're not sure um, exactly you know, why that or how he, he's thinking about how people would have heard it in that time. But either way, Jesus is going to turn the principle on its head for his followers. And he's not just maybe heightening or intensifying this law for those who follow him, kind of like he maybe did with, with murder or adultery last week. I really do think he's kind of framing it as a bit of a break at, with this law, at least as it's understood in that time. Okay. Now, side note. Okay, this is, I was trying to figure out like, where do I talk about this in the sermon. I, I figured this is the best spot for it. Um, one of the issues we won't get to today is like the fact that there is plenty of violence in the Old Testament. All right? Like when we read through it, 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 it is, it's common. Uh, God seems to command it at times. It's a really tricky issue. All right? It's really a thorny one, and it takes a lot of time to really kind of go through and just consider how that fits with what Jesus is saying in this passage today. And I think just for the purposes of time, we're just going to keep our focus on Jesus. I want this to be our in to this question in Scripture, okay? I want us to start here, right? Uh, to fi- figure out what is Scripture's view on this issue as a whole. So, so let's just kind of note for the purposes of this sermon that Jesus is kind of acknowledging a bit of a break. He's, he's kind of proposing something that seems fresh or new, at least to the people that he's talking uh, to. And he, I think he would want us to start here as well, okay? So this isn't to say the Old Testament doesn't matter. Far from it, in fact, but I think Jesus is offering us an opportunity to consider him and what he says in kind of isolation to all of that, to that kind of tough question. So that's what we're going to do today, too. We're going to start here and kind of open the door for, you know, if you want to have more conversation about that later on, like, we want to just start here. We'd love to have, you know, have you get into that conversation. It's difficult, but for today, we're just going to start here and kind of focus on what Jesus and the New Testament have to say on this question. So when we do start with Jesus, what does he say? What is the break that he has from this eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth thing? Well, he says here in verses 39 to 42, "...but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles." Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So he's kind of talking about some specific examples, and he refers to four kind of contemporary laws uh, kind of in his time. Um, So first of all, slapping someone on the cheek. Uh, This was major disrespect. This wasn't just something that, you know, is in like a you know, a, a, a movie, right, where, like, someone slaps someone on the cheek for a comedic effect. This was, like, majorly disrespectful. This was the kind of thing you did not do in polite society to someone else. Um, and, and especially, okay, he says on the right cheek, assuming that it's on the right cheek, that would likely be a backhanded slap if the person that's is slapping is right-handed. That was, like, an extra layer of disrespect, slapping someone backhanded, Right, this is something that you were not supposed to let stand if someone did this to you. Okay, there are actually like ancient laws against it, requiring a certain level of uh, recompense for the person who was slapped because of it. And the ancient world, you know, this is because it was very honor shame focused. So, kind of acquiring honor and limiting shame was like an ultimate goal for people. So, this was one of a, a very like shameful thing to have done to you. So that's why it's such a big deal. Jesus is saying, be willing to take on heaps of shame without resisting it. That's what he's asking people to do with this. He's not just saying, you know, don't, you know, oh, it stung for a few seconds afterwards and let that stand. He's saying, no, 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 be willing to like take on the shame that might come from this without requiring the other person has to pay for it. Okay, so that's what that means. And and let's talk about the carrying someone's load. We won't talk about all four of these, but the carrying someone's load. This refers to a Roman law. So Roman soldiers, kind of Palestine in this time was an occupied territory, so there are Roman soldiers and officials living all over the place at this time. They were able to lawfully force labor from people in occupied territory that they lived in. So one application of that law was that if they told you to, they kind of picked you out of a crowd and they said, hey, you... You need to help carry my load. You need to help carry my gear, all my, uh, you know, my uh, army equipment or whatever it is. You could uh, require them to carry it for a mile. That was what the law was. Okay? They wouldn't let you go any further than that, but the law said you had to at least carry their stuff for a mile. Jesus here says, why not go two miles? A mile's not that far to walk. You could probably walk two, right? So he's saying, don't just res-, you know, not resist them. He's saying, why don't you go a little bit further than that? Now this one would really strike a nerve. The Romans were deeply resented in this area. There was, uh, you know, multiple very serious armed uh, uh, rebellions that occurred in this era. Um, So Jesus is indirectly condemning that as a response to these Roman soldiers. He's saying, don't just you know not violently resist them when they kind of enforce their will on you guys. Go further than that. Jesus is saying, with with all these things, don't just uh, you know. Uh, not resist these kinds of things when they happen to you, even if it's legit evil, he's saying uh, go further than just not resisting. Let the creative power of God's love uh, show you a deeper response than anger and vengeance. Okay, Jesus did not want us to resist evil with more evil. He wants to have us to have a different response than that, a response of love. Now, sometimes to be a faithful reader of Scripture, it's necessary to kind of read be, you know, between the lines or kind of beyond the textually really understand it, you know, well. But sometimes it's not, okay? Sometimes it's pretty straightforward. And I think that we should probably read this pretty straightforward. I don't think Jesus is intending for us to apply a bunch of caveats to what he's saying because we kind of decide, here's a bunch of situations I don't think fit this, I think Jesus wants us to take this as a pretty strong principle that we live out wherever we can. That's certainly how Jesus was understood by uh, the rest of the people who followed him, the people who write the rest of our Bibles, okay? We kind of know that they took this pretty seriously, okay? So, for example, the Apostle Paul preaches a similarly radical ethic to the Roman church in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12. He says, "'Do not repay anyone evil for evil.'" Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the big idea for Paul, kind of building on what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, is this. Ultimately, responding to evil with more evil only compounds the problem. It doesn't get rid of it. It just adds to what was already there. Okay? I do think we ought to resist evil, Okay, and we can maybe talk about that a little bit more in the Q&R if you want to, but we can never respond in the form of the evil that was done to us. When you respond in kind, okay, if you respond to someone who does evil to you with more evil back to them, with a vengeance, trying to get something back because of what they've done to you, you are inviting them, this aggressor, to do the same thing back again, creating this sort of never-ending cycle of tit-for-tat that can you know, sometimes even spill out and affect other people around you. People who are kind of collateral damage around this initial conflict can get sucked into it. This is what I think Paul means by being overcome by evil. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let God be the one who repays evil for evil. When we take that burden on ourselves, it usually just ends up corrupting us. Okay? To play this game of retaliation and vengeance is us like, flirting with the evil that was done to us. Right? Evil has this sort of way of, of transferring from, one, you know, from person to person. Right? It never kind of stays with the person who starts it when people retaliate. It kind of becomes owned by everybody else, like a disease or an out-of-control fire that starts to just spread from one place to everyone else around it. Right? And playing with it means we'll get burnt by it. Instead, Paul is saying, we need to put the fire out and not let ourselves become kindling for the fire to keep raging on past us to others. Martin Luther King Jr. is very famous for his sort of his sort of style of protest. It was nonviolent. And he built it on these exact principles. Um, And and he says this, Returning hate for hate, this is kind of a famous passage uh, from, from Martin Luther King's sermon. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I think that's what Paul means when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this stretches us. This is supposed to be challenging words to hear, right? If if, if you think Jesus thought this would not be a tough thing to hear, then you probably, you know, are not really thinking that deeply about it. But we can do that a lot of times when we maybe hear this. We're sitting in this room, right? And we sit here and we think, yeah, that sounds pretty good. In theory, I like the principle. Cool. Two thumbs up to that. But it's really going to stretch us after we've been wronged. Because right? a lot of times when we get wronged, an eye for an eye feels really right to us in that moment. Right? Something in us just kind of won't be satisfied until we feel like we get that back. Maybe you can think of examples of yourself you know, where someone has wronged you and you feel like the only thing I can do to sort of satisfy this craving for vengeance is to respond in some way. It could just be a little comment, right? It could just be like sort of lashing out back to them right it doesn't have to necessarily you know, be something over the top but it, it it there's something that feels good or necessary for us in the moment to respond in kind to someone who does evil back to it, or evil to us in the first place and we think when you look back at like th- think about this right we just we just finally got out of afghanistan in the united states you know we've been fighting multiple decades you know wars in the middle east and everyone you know thought this was so unpopular like why were we here in the first place um, but if you look back at at when this first started after 9-11, right, when everyone in America just felt this zeal to go back and get back at the people who did this to us, that war was very popular. There's something about, you know, being slapped in the face that makes us just really want to go slap the other person back again, right? It's just something, it is part of us as humans. And Jesus wants us to not just find this to you know, be right in theory when we're sitting here and we don't feel wronged in the moment, but to believe it even after we've been wronged. To say no to that kind of craving that we might have. To go back and pay someone back for what they've done to us. I think that's when we're going to be called to be stretched. Jesus is calling us to say no to the sort of power of eye for an eye. Now, if you remember, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has called us a city on a hill. He's called us salt. We talked about how you know, we need to live that out, we need to take that seriously so we can really be a force for uh, you know, God's kingdom spreading throughout the world, for you know, inviting people to know Jesus and letting them experience what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. If we are going to bring light to the world, like Jesus has called us to do, how are we supposed to do that If we are multiplying darkness around us at the same time, it doesn't really work when we're just kind of adding to stuff around us. It's just going to cancel out any good that we do. Now, I think the New Testament church, when we read this, you know, beyond Romans here, we we find that they took this very serious. There is never once, uh, do we find violence or retaliation as ever, you know, presented as part of following Jesus. Okay? Instead, what we find is when, when, when Christians are, violence is done to them, we find that they take Jesus' words to heart and even allow themselves to experience death, right? To become martyrs in their unwillingness to respond to the evil done to them, which actually counterintuitively causes the church to grow. I think that's why Jesus is so radical about all this. Now maybe you're asking a question here, like, you know, you're thinking about other passages in, the, in, you know, in the New Testament maybe even, where you say, like, doesn't Jesus actually advocate violence in some other places? Okay, so let's talk about those. I want to, you know, spend a little time talking about some of those passages today. Um, in the first sermon, you know, after, you know, Jesus talks about blessed are the peacemakers, we talked about this in the Beatitudes, and I got a, a question in the Q&R time afterwards of, you know, how, about, how that fits Jesus' other comments, and I gave a short answer, at least short for me. Uh, to that, Um, but here I kind of want to give a fuller sort of explanation through some of these passages that do sometimes get cited as kind of conflicting with what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. And I I think when we actually really dig into these and look at them, they kind of help make this picture that we have from the Sermon on the Mount sort of more complete, Okay, so, so let's dig into them. And, and Richard Hayes, I kind of, you know, used that story from his book earlier in, in the sermon. Um, his, his chapter on this, in, the, in that book, The Moral Vision, New Testament, was really helpful to me here. So just to you know, give credit where credit is due. So, okay, so the first one, uh, Matthew 10, 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And you're like, well, here you go, Joel. You said we got to read the Bible straightforwardly, right? Well, this seems pretty straightforward, I did say that, yes. Okay, but let's read this in context. All right, let's try to understand what's going on here. Let's not just take the verse in isolation, but understand what what's actually being said around this. So Jesus is commissioning mission teams to go, kind of spread the news that God's kingdom has come, that God's Messiah is here, and Jesus is sort of spreading, you know, sending some people out to nearby villages to talk about this. So, okay, if it was true that Jesus was telling them, you know, uh, to, you know. I've come to bring a sword, then he would be advocating for a sort of violent spread of the gospel, right? That's what he'd be telling these people to do. Well, I think it's obvious that Jesus didn't mean that, right? That's clearly not how they interpreted him. I think instead, Jesus and his kingdom, he's referring to the fact that these things, that this kingdom has come to a world that it didn't necessarily ask for it. Some people long for it, but many people are not happy that it's here and it's experiencing resistance, Okay. Uh, people literally want to kill Jesus. He knows that this is the case, right? This is kind of a feature throughout the Gospels. is his awareness that some people are so angry at what he's doing, they, they literally want to kill him. And we kind of talked about this in that first sermon, right? The kingdom announcement is, is crashing into this world, right? It's creating some friction, The sword here, I think, is metaphorical for that friction between those who proclaim the good news and those who refuse it, who resist it, who kind of maybe pick up swords themselves in order to try and stop it from spreading, right? So if anyone is going to experience the sword, it's actually Jesus' disciples, not not the people they're going out to preach this to. Right? And like I said, that's the exact story of the New Testament. Read the book of Acts. Right? People are literally experiencing the sword as they go out to uh, spread this message of God's kingdom come to earth. Right? That is often awaited Jesus' disciples. Not just in, in the Bible, but, but many times afterwards if you look at the history of the spread of the church. Okay? Now we see that in another passage that is kind of supposedly... Uh, you know, a, 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 a place that Jesus sort of uh, um, condones violence of some kind. Again, talking about a sword here, but we see kind of the same thing kind of picked up again. All right, so this is from Luke twenty-two, thirty-six to 38. Then he said to them, Jesus, Jesus, but now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the outlaws. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. Enough of that, he told them. Okay, so this is during the Lord's Supper, right? This is right before Jesus is about to get crucified. His last um, opportunity to really spend time in depth with his disciples, uh, talking about, you know, what he's up to before this kind of ultimate resistance to Jesus is about to happen. Okay, kind of what we talk, just talked about, but at its largest scale, where he's literally about to go on the cross, Okay, again, I think this is pretty clearly rhetorical. Okay? We are about to encounter resistance, violence, and some of you are going to need to run, right? Just as it's been written in Scripture. I will be seen and treated as an outlaw, he says. Now Jesus, we talked about this a little bit last week, he likes rhetoric, he likes turns of phrases, he's a good communicator. He's not just you know, blunt in what he says, he uses sort of imagery to get his point across. He does this often, okay? I think the best way to read this Is like in the way that we sometimes use weapon imagery to describe a situation that, you know, very clearly did not have any uh, weapons being used in it, all right? So, like, if you said, I got stabbed in the back by a friend of yours, right? You're not literally saying, you know, my friend pulled a knife out of her pocket... I turned my back and I got stabbed by them, right? That's not what you mean. You just kind of are referring to something that happened to you and you use a weapon to describe it. You know, another way you could say it is like if you go into a debate, you're unprepared and, and someone says, well, you brought a knife to a gunfight, dude, right? That's like we use that weapon imagery to describe you know, certain situations that clearly don't include actual violence. I think that's what's going on here. And I think, okay, just let's just read the rest of the passage here, all right? I think we know Jesus didn't mean for them to grab actual swords for a couple of reasons, okay? First of all, literally right after Jesus says this, his disciples, taking Jesus very literally, scrounge together a couple swords. I don't know where they found these swords, but they like literally get them together and they come to Jesus and they're like, oh, you said grab sword. We have two, we don't just have one sword, Jesus, we have two swords. And he goes, oh my goodness, you guys, enough have you never heard a metaphor before? <laughs> okay. They, enough of that, he told them. Okay. So he literally, in this passage, is like, that's not what I meant, you guys. This is not what I was talking about. Okay. But let's skip ahead in the story, too. A little bit further on, this is in Matthew's account, though, where just a little bit after this, you know, these soldiers actually come to arrest Jesus to take him to the cross. So this is Matthew uh, 26, 52 to 53. And, and uh, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, Pulls a sword out of his cloak and cuts a guy's ear off, one of the guys that's trying to arrest Jesus. Okay, this is what Jesus says to him Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? All right, if Jesus had been really telling these guys, grab some swords. Let's get ready for this stuff. You, get, you know, this is going to be fun. Can't you guys wait? He would, have t- he would have told Peter, dude, nice job. That's what he was said to him for pulling out his sword and like resisting, using a sword to kind of fight back. But he doesn't give that response. He, he gets mad at Peter. And he says to him basically this, quit trying to be such a hero, dude. Peter, if my goal was violence, if I was telling you guys to use violence to resist or to spread my message, I could do a lot more than your dumb little sword, right? I could, I, trying to fight violence with violence will just get you killed. If you want to live by the sword, then you will die by the sword. That's how it works. And, and Jesus, taking what he said in the Sermon on the Mount very literally, okay, of not just not resisting evil, but going further than that, he actually heals this guy's ear. Okay, how about Jesus and the temple, right? This is another one that gets talked about sometimes. All right, well, in all four Gospels, Jesus, you know, he goes into the Jerusalem temple and he does some aggressive interior decorating, we could say, right, with, with it. Um, and, and even in John's account of it, he actually, we're told, he makes a whip out of cords, now, some have thought this means Jesus is seeking conflict. He's even advocating violence in some situations, right? That this is a normal, it's a good thing for us to do sometimes. Now, okay, I do think it's true. Jesus does call uh, people out. He's not afraid to call people out in some headline-grabbing ways. Okay, that's very clear. Jesus is not afraid to sort of make a statement in a, in a, in a way that kind of grabs people's attention. And, and none of what he said, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't mean that he's not preaching. He's not, he's not assuming that God does uh, do judgment against evil, right? I think he very much assumes that actually. But let's look closer at this event. Okay, first off, I think this is really obvious but important. No one is injured, right? We're not told anyone is actually injured in this, right? Or even targeted for injury, okay? All it seems like happens is some tables are turned over, right? It's not like Jesus is trying to burn this thing down. The whip seems to be for driving out animals right? Animals don't always listen to, to, you know, to reason. So Jesus is using a whip to try to get them out of there, okay? And second, think about this. If you were, you know, if you were going into this situation planning to use violence for some purposes, like, you would, what would your goal be? It probably wouldn't just to go in to, like, hurt some people for fun, right? Like, if Jesus were going in, uh, you know, using violence, his goal would probably have been to, like, attempt a takeover of the temple, Right? To say, oh, we're going to take it back for God. Right, guys? Let's do it. Okay? That's not what he does, though. Right? He, he, he attempts no takeover. He kind of makes his point, and he peacefully leaves afterwards. Hey, he's not claiming to now be running the temple. That's what you would be doing if you were kind of going to use violence, but that's not what he's doing. So what is he doing? Well, I think he's making a point. Right? Most scholars accept that Jesus is performing a sort of prophetic, symbolic image foreshadowing the destruction of the temple, which happens in AD 70 by Rome, you know, a little bit later on, um, for their refusal. It is, kind of a, you know, it is saying God's judgment is on this place and, and you know, something is going to happen to destroy it down the road. And that happens. Ro- the Romans come in and destroy the temple. Okay? So it's a very prophetic thing for Jesus to be doing here. It kind of fits in with what prophets do in other places um, in the Bible. But he's not trying to destroy the temple himself or harm anyone that's there. He's just trying to make a point. This isn't a perfect analogy, but in some ways, it's kind of like a protest, right? So imagine, you know, someone goes in and kind of trashes like a facility. It doesn't hurt anybody or do any major damage, but kind of goes in and trashes a facility where they make nuclear weapons. And they say, this is what will happen to the whole world if you guys keep pumping these out. Something like that, I think, is more in view, Okay. Certainly, Jesus resists evil and he speaks of judgment, but he is, like Paul says, he's leaving room for God to be the one who does that. Okay, that's a good example of this, I think, in the, the temple action. Okay, so soldiers in the New Testament. All right, this is actually, I do think this is one, we can maybe call it an exception that the New Testament kind of carves out. Because okay? it is true, there are multiple soldiers in the New Testament accounts who are presented as Exemplary followers of Jesus, like, you know, they're presented as as very good. Uh, Cornelius the Centurion is one of the most famous ones um, that we, we read about this. Um, now, soldiers in the old, uh, uh, sorry, in this in this era, they kind of operate as a as a peacekeeping force many times. So they're kind of like soldier, but also had the, the 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 purpose of like policing things in, in, in there. N- never once are we told that any of these soldiers are told to renounce their profession in order to follow Jesus. Okay, it doesn't seem like the early church saw military participation or police work as inherently sinful or evil. Okay, the work of sort of limiting evil in the world. By the state is a legit profession. That's that's what we're being told here. Romans 13, Paul kind of talks about this a little bit, saying, you know, the job of one of the jobs of the government is to limit evil with with the sword, okay? Seems not to be restricting Christian participation in that, okay? But all that said, all right, I do think uh, that doesn't just give followers of Jesus who serve in those professions sort of carte blanche. Uh, you know, uh, do whatever you want in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the use of this, um, you know, legal authority that you've been given, okay? I think nowhere would this lead us to glorify the work that these professions do the way we sometimes see in the church, right? Maybe you've, you've been to a church, right, and there's this sort of patriotic imagery kind of glorifying in, you know, wars and, you know, the, 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 the stuff that, you know, Christians are doing in service of, like, going and, and fighting bad guys as if it's, like, uh, you know, uh, one of the highest callings that we could have as Christians. I don't think Jesus would tell us to be taking on that vision in our churches, right? I said I th- instead, I think we should see these professions as difficult, as unfortunately necessary in a broken world, and, and really do our best if we know Christians who are in these professions to pray and to encourage them to not succumb to this sort of deceptive and seductive power of violence, that so easily entraps people and to find themselves getting burned up by it, like we talked about earlier. To absolutely not to seek it out and only to, to do it when absolutely there's like no other option. And to never see it as a positive development in a situation for that, you know, unfortunately, to have to get used. So I think you know, taking all of this and looking at Jesus specifically, when we look at the New Testament, what we find is this. Jesus practices what he preaches, okay? He doesn't just tell us, you know, you should do this and then kind of never come back to it or not live it out himself. If anything, it's the opposite. Jesus gives us many examples of him taking this seriously, all right, and I want us to kind of linger here for a little bit and talk about some of the ramifications of that for us as we follow him because um, I think it's ab- actually very essential to, even to, if we go to the heart of the gospel, this idea of Jesus practicing what he preaches is right there for us. And that's why we have to take this so seriously, I think. Okay? So we see this consistently in his life. Jesus does not seek violence out. Instead, he lets violence be done to him. He is slapped in the cheek, most notably on the cross. Right? This kinda, we have a cross right up here. It is a, the, the central uh, symbol of our faith is Jesus taking this seriously. Okay, like that, that's literally baked in, right? He goes further than he says in the Sermon on the Mount by letting himself get put to death by his enemies, right? It's a pretty radical interpretation of his already pretty radical words when we really think about it. Remember, we've been talking about how the Sermon on the Mount, it sort of, it points us to a deep understanding of the law by pushing us to go further than maybe we thought before we came into uh, encounter with it. And when we follow Jesus and we meditate on his own commitment to live this out, we learn two things that I want us to talk about here quickly about the kingdom of God and about what it means to follow him. Okay, first, God is more powerful than those who do evil to us. And second, Jesus invites us to see the world and our enemies in a brand new way. Okay, first, we don't need to fear God, or sorry, we don't need to fear evil done to us, okay? So often when we retaliate, it's done out of fear, right? Out of feeling out of control in a situation, feeling like if we don't respond, you know, what hope do we have, okay? When we look at Jesus, we are looking at at someone who did not fear that. He did not fear things were out of control just because this evil was being done to him. Because he b- truly believed that his death wasn't the end. Right? God did something far greater in raising Jesus from the dead than he ever could have done if Jesus had punched back and fought. Right? How much more powerful is the resurrection than Jesus, you know, taking up arms and going and fighting the bad guys himself? Isn't the resurrection a far more powerful thing that we would hope for God to do than to call us to take up arms ourselves and try to fight evil that way? And when we look at Christian history, again, this hope is what animated Christians from the time of Jesus up until the present day, that death would not be the end for the people who have, done evil, have had evil done to them. Okay? The ones doing evil to them would not be the ones to get the last laugh. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can restore you from any evil done to you. Right? That's something I think we have to believe and allow that fear that we might have that might spur us to retaliate, to go away because we think the situation is far more under God's control and God can do far more amazing things out of it than we could ever do by retaliating on our own. All right, And second here, this invites us to see the world and our enemies in a new way, okay? And so ultimately, I think this is the big idea. We need to unlearn what we have learned about how we view our enemies. And we see this as Jesus kind of expands beyond what he says uh, initially in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is verses 43 to 48. Um, "'You have heard it was said, "'Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. "'But I tell you, love your enemies "'and pray for those who persecute you, "'that you may be children of your Father in heaven.'" So Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19.18, where he says the love your neighbor part. But he's at, he adds something after it, the hate your enemy. Um, that's probably him taking some phrase that people you know, kind of took from this Leviticus passage and expanded on it uh, to take it deeper. Like, it's so, you can love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy. Okay? That's probably the, a common phrase that people would have known in that time. So you know, it says, the one who does evil to you you are totally justified in hating them. You are totally justified. The one who does good, those are the people you should love. Yeah? If they kind of give it to you, you should give it back to them. Jesus is saying, then no, there's nothing remarkable or profound about that. Right? That is so easy to do. Right? We can look around at and, and everybody else okay? and, and see that everyone does this. Right? Nazis did that. Okay? Terrorists do that. The, the, the people that we look at as sort of the worst uh, perpetrators of violence, even they do this, okay? So how can that be a profound you know, philosophy to have, right? No amount of lipstick is going to make that pig anything more than a pig, Jesus is saying. Jesus wants us to not just show love to those who are easy to show it to, but to see our enemies in a new way, in a very radically different one. And again, we see Jesus is consistent with his own words. Okay, So again, let's go back to Romans. The Apostle Paul writing a little bit earlier in that letter, he looks back at the cross and he sees Jesus choosing not just to resist evil, but to show love toward his enemies. But who are his enemies in this passage? Who are the ones that Paul is talking about showing love to here? Well, he's talking about you and me in this passage. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Paul looks back at his own encounter with Jesus, he finds that he was loved despite his own resistance to Jesus, despite his sin, which kind of set him as an enemy to God as he lived this, you know, agenda out that was put him often in conflict with God's will. He found in himself an enemy of God, but one who was not treated as an enemy but who is loved. And he sees in that all of our stories. When we worship God, when we think about the cross, when we we're going to take communion here in a few minutes to you know, close this all up, right? What we're doing is we're reflecting on the cross. We're reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. We believe it gives us life. It gives us hope, right? It, it saves us from our sin. It is the sort of fundamental heart of what we believe. When we Look, at God, look to that and we thank God for it, ultimately what we're doing is we're thanking God that he took his own words in the Sermon on the Mount seriously. We're, we're thanking God that Jesus is not a hypocrite. We were the enemies. That's what it meant for us to be sinners, to oppose God. And an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, might have felt good Right? It might have, you know, Jesus could have made the argument that he was justified in responding towards us, but he resisted that pull. Jesus didn't treat us like enemies. Instead, we see he loved us. I think the least that we can do is turn around and do the same, knowing that Jesus is not asking us to do something that he was not willing to do himself. People are going to wrong us. We will have. We will have people in this life set themselves against us, right, as enemies towards us, okay? It's going to feel good sometimes to respond in resistance to that, to respond back in what they've done to us, okay? But let's live the gospel out towards people. Let's take that seriously. Let's be people who believe that this matters, who are willing to live out this radical way of Jesus that we have been the direct beneficiaries of. All right, so let's move into a time of Q and R. But uh, real quick, I'm just going to anticipate one question I assume I got, (laughs) Um, and and and, uh, I I just want to address this now. Okay, Um, this leaves us with a lot of questions, right? Again, this is a challenging set of words from Jesus that, when we think about how do we, man, how do we apply this into our day-to-day lives, it brings up a lot of questions. The kind of thing we're going to be always wrestling with. Okay. Um, and, you know, we'll do that here in a little bit with q and Also, in your community groups this week, you'll get a chance to really unpack these, you know, plenty. But let me just say this one. I'm assuming a lot of people have this question on abuse, right? What do we, what do, we do for people who are trapped in abusive situations? Is Jesus asking us to remain indefinitely in them, or even to, to sort of seek them out, right? I don't think that I don't think that's, a, that's how you should read what Jesus is saying here, okay? He's not asking us to remain in these situations or to continue to seek them out where we are the target of repeated victim or the repeated victim of like violence or, or abuse of, of evil, okay? I think even the most radical reading of the Sermon on the Mount doesn't get you there, okay? We will find ourselves in situations where we have no control, Right? And, and in those moments, I think that's where we're, you know, we're supposed to respond as Jesus calls us to. Right? When, when evil is forced upon us, we could say the day of evil comes upon us. We don't have, we, 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 we don't have any choice but to face it. Okay? That's what Jesus, I think, is talking about here. Someone slaps you in the face. In the moment, how do you respond? A, a soldier picks you out of the crowd and invokes this you know, legal right to make you walk a mile with him. How do you respond in that moment? That's what Jesus is speaking to. He doesn't say, okay, so get up tomorrow morning, go, go find that soldier again, and ask if he wants to make this a regular date, all right? That's not what he's, he's saying here at all, right? Jesus never asks us to seek out these situations, right? He's never asked us to stay in them indefinitely. He's asking us to respond a certain way when we have no choice in a moment, okay? John Stott, I think he just sums up really well. We'll close here with this and get into some other questions. Um, but Jesus is, he says, Jesus' illustrations and personal examples depict not the weakling who offers no resistance. They depict rather the strong person whose control of themselves and love for others are so powerful they re- that they reject every imaginable form of retaliation. Jesus' purpose was to forbid revenge, not to encourage injustice. Okay? So I don't think Jesus is asking us to remain in abusive settings. Okay. All right. Um, do we have any other questions? We, we have many questions. Okay. You want to turn Julie's mic on? Yeah, we've got a lot of really great questions. Um, I think we'll have to find a way to continue the conversation since we're running a little short on time. Um, but maybe just for one question, can you comment on the idea of self-defense? So the person gave an example of like, you know, someone breaks into my house. Can I protect my family or, how, you know, how does that kind of work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I will admit I've thought about this one a lot, actually. This is one where I have wondered, like, is, you know, someone breaks into your house. Like, okay. Uh, every year we, we try to just do like a, a plan. As a church, like what would we do in an emergency if there's a tornado or a fire? Unfortunately, we live in a world where we have to make a plan for what we would do if uh, someone came in with a gun, right? And that's just a reality of the world we live in. And I have wondered, like, what would we do in that situation? Um, is it appropriate to try to disarm the person by, you know, knocking them out, by, you know, trying to, you know, uh, disarm them with, you know, knocking them on the head or something like that? I don't know. This is, this is where I feel like this really does stretch us, right? This is where I feel like this, these words of Jesus really do challenge us. I think if I had to give an answer to that direct question, I would say, I don't think there's anything, I don't think Jesus would say it's wrong for us to try to disarm the shooter. Um, I, I don't think it's wrong for us to try to stop what they're doing. But I also think at the same time, we should be, you know, you know, not be afraid of death in those types of situations either. I think that's, again, to kind of go back to what we learned from Jesus' own resurrection from the dead is, is to not see those types of situations uh, to, uh, you know, to, to lead us to fear death to the point where we would do something we might later be afraid of, it, you know, uh, 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 couldn't live with ourselves with in some way, okay? But again, this is, it's a great example just of like how challenging, that this is to live, that we have to ask ourselves really practical questions uh, like this. Um, and I think that's where we as a community of Jesus followers, all committed to taking this seriously, have to figure out what it looks like for us to follow, um, you know, Jesus well in situations that aren't always as black and white as we might think they could be. So yeah, that's the only one you, you want to do? We're just running low on time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's, okay. I think, yeah, the idea of limiting evil and also not being afraid of death are two things that mm-hmm have to kind of live together and, yeah. and wrestle through. So. Yeah, yeah. I would love to, like I said, if you have a specific question, like I'll be around after church, like grab some donuts and talk about it downstairs or something, or if you ever want to get together and talk about it more, um, you know, I'd love to grab lunch or coffee with you and, and do that sometime. Because again, this is a really challenging thing that Jesus calls us to. Um, let's let's pray though and let's kind of wrap up the service here there and uh, we'll enter a time of worship um, and we'll enter a time of communion I kind of mentioned earlier right communion is a, is a place where every week we kind of reflect on what Jesus has done for us we 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 think about his body broken his blood shed on our behalf because of the the evil done to him right that that's what we're, we're literally thinking about the fact that some oppressor did this to Jesus and yet through that we experience salvation and life and hope. Okay, that's what we're reflecting on every single Sunday. So as you take communion today, um, you don't have to be a member at Rest City. We just ask that you are a follower of Jesus. If you take it, reflect on that. Reflect on the fact that we were enemies. We were people that um, had, had, had wronged Jesus and he chose to respond to us in love um, by going the extra mile himself. Um, also, if you like prayer for anything, we will have people praying in the back as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, um, you lived out your own words. You took your own words seriously. You're not a hypocrite. And we are forgiven of our sin. We have new life. We have the hope of resurrection one day as well because you are consistent, because you lived out these radical, challenging words that you called us uh, to follow you in, God. Give us the, the, the strength, the power, and the wisdom to know what that looks like, in a world where it is not always easy, where it is a challenge, where we have to wrestle with difficult questions, God, as we face sometimes very, very great evils in the world. How are we gonna to respond to it? God, I pray that in those moments, you'd give us wisdom, you'd give us power to respond as you would call us to, whatever that looks like. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.